The reading is taken from the Epistle to the Hebrews, beginning at chapter 4, verse 14, and going on into chapter 5. This is on page 1203 in your Bibles. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder how you're doing with your New Year's resolutions. Managed to keep them all so far? Nobody's answering to that one. Somebody sent me this prayer by email. Dear Lord, so far today I am doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish or self-indulgent. I have not whined, complained, cursed or eaten any chocolate. I have charged nothing on my credit card. But I'll be getting out of bed in a minute, and I think that I'll really need your help then. (laughs) Our passage speaks of not only needing, but finding help. The end of verse 16 of chapter 4. We may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have the rather cryptic title this morning of Praying Through the Sun. 
To many of us, we'll know immediately what that means, but to others, it may be rather inexplicable. No, I don't mean inexplicable, because I'm just about to explain it, but I mean the meaning isn't obvious at first sight. It follows on from last week's title, Praying to the Father. The idea is that prayer is a Trinitarian activity like everything else in the Christian life. And all three persons of the Trinity are involved. So we pray to the Father through the Son, that is through the mediation of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. We're thinking about this idea of praying to God, coming to God through the mediation of Jesus. A friend of mine is a clergyman in Australia. He very rarely wears his dog collar, but on one occasion he was wearing it in the street and a tramp spotted him and yelled out, Hey, Father, say one for me. And my friend said, Say one for yourself, you lazy coot. Who do you think I am? My friend was making the point that the tramp did not need someone to put in a good word for him. But it is instinctive to feel that we do need someone. We need a go-between between us and God, someone who will put in a good word for us. After all, why should Almighty God pay attention to me? Who am I, or who are you for that matter, to think that the creator of the universe would have the slightest interest in us, or that we should be able to approach the Holy One of Israel? Does God listen to us when we pray? How do we know that he'll hear us? We've just sung these words. Can it be that thou regardest songs of sinful man? Can we know that thou art near us and wilt wilt hear us? Yes, we can. But can we? How do we know? How do we know that God will accept our prayers? And how do we know that he will hear our prayers? After all, if we're honest, our experience of prayer is that so often it seems that there is really no one there. We feel that we're talking to the ceiling. Or we wonder whether we're just having a conversation with ourselves. And strangely enough, it seems to be especially like that when you really need God. When something has gone badly wrong. Somebody's died or there's been a catastrophe at work or there's some problem that you're going through. Why is it that just when you really need God, then of all times he seems to be so distant, so far off? And there's just silence and no sense of his presence. The Welsh priest and poet R.S. Thomas speaks of prayers like gravel flung at the sky's window, hoping to attract the loved one's attention. I suspect many of us will know that experience. Part of the problem maybe that we are led to expect too much. Our culture is very into self-fulfillment, personal self-fulfillment. The purpose of everything is to fulfill ourselves. And this has spilled over into Christian thinking and writing. And many books on prayer lead us to expect a wonderfully satisfying experience of intimacy with God a powerful sense of the closeness of his presence and an assurance beyond all doubt that he has heard us. Now, sometimes it is like that. Some of us will know experiences like that. But I suspect that it's not often like that. And if we're honest, most of the time it's not, and quite a lot of the time we wonder whether anyone's listening at all. 
I suggest that we're actually being led astray by our culture's preoccupation with this, this whole thing of personal self-fulfillment. Everything is supposed to be a great experience that makes me feel good about myself and glad to be me. And so, so many books about prayer talk about techniques, procedures to go through to make it a wonderful experience. Now, I don't want to knock that. Such experiences are valuable and they're important. And some passages in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, do speak about that sense of intimacy in God's presence. But it doesn't seem to me to be the essential purpose of prayer, according to the Bible. When you turn to the Bible, and especially to the teaching of Jesus, it seems to me much more simple, much more straightforward, much less mystical and experience-oriented, in fact, quite down-to-earth and matter-of-fact. It's amazing. The disciples come to Jesus, they, Lord, teach us to pray. And he does not talk about techniques. He does not talk about exercises to do to get yourself in the right frame of mind. He simply says, pray like this, and he gives the disciples a list of requests. Very simple, very straightforward, very down-to-earth, very practical. And it seems to me that the Bible's basic attitude to prayer is summed up by the verse Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul writes to the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That's the bottom line, it seems to me, in the Bible. It's simply a matter of presenting our requests to God. It's not a matter of complicated spiritual exercises or a matter of having an experience. I may have a wonderful experience when I pray, but it really doesn't matter if I don't. What matters is simply that God should hear my requests. Now, it seems to me that is especially important for people who are going through the mill in one way or another, going through bereavement or something like that. It seems to me that part of the experience of suffering, when we're bereaved or when we're depressed or when we're just in trouble, part of the experience is that it, it, it somehow cuts us off, not only from God but from other people. We become insulated, isolated, turned in on ourselves. And it's surely reassuring to know that even if I feel cut off, yet I can know that God hears my prayers, even if I have no sense of his presence or his closeness or his being there. So the question is then, does he hear us and how can we know? Sometimes we speak and think as if God will hear us, if only we pray in the right way, if I say the right things, if I pray in the right frame of mind or the right attitude of heart. If I pray long enough or often enough, or if I go through some sort of procedure, then God will hear me. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't babble on like the Gentiles. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. We're not heard because we get the techniques right. We're not heard because we pray long enough or often enough. 
No, prayer is like everything else in the Christian religion. It's not because of anything we do that our prayers are heard, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And the reason that God will hear us, and the reason we know he will hear us, is spelt out in our passage. So, back to Hebrews 4, and four quick points. First of all, Jesus is our great high priest, chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We have a great high priest. We have a go-between. We have someone to speak on our behalf. We have someone to put in a good word for us before the throne of God. Now, Jesus has a double qualification spelled out in chapter 5. First, he is selected from among men, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, that's us, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Paul is talking, sorry, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament priesthood and simply making the point that it, it needs a man to represent men before God. Someone who is subject to the same conditions, someone who goes through the same problems, someone who has the same weaknesses. He is therefore able to represent us before God. And Jesus is selected from among men. He is one of us and therefore can represent us. The other side of his qualification is that he he is appointed by God himself. Verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 10, he has been designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is appointed by God himself. He is therefore acceptable to God as our representative. If Jesus had put himself forward, well, there'd be no guarantee that God would pay any attention to him. If we had put Jesus forward as our representative, again, there would be no guarantee that God would listen to him. But God has appointed him, designated him as our priest, as it says in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, For Melchizedek, read chapter 7 and Genesis 14. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that now. The gist of what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is a better kind of priest than Aaron and all the other Old Testament priests. The priesthood of Jesus is effective in a way that the priesthood of Aaron and the other Old Testament priests never was. So Jesus is our high priest. Second point, Jesus is the high priest that we need. He exactly meets our need. Now here I'm jumping to the end of chapter 7 and verse 23. Here the writer points out a number of ways in which Jesus is better than Aaron and the Old Testament priests. Now he says there have been many of those priests 
since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In that sense, he's better than Aaron and all the others because he lives forever. Such a high priest, verse 26, meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath, the promise which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is better than Aaron and the Old Testament priest because he is himself without sin. How could you be sure that a sinful high priest would himself be listened to by God? But Jesus is a high priest with no sin. The reason we need a high priest is because of sin. I'm sure you'll be familiar with the words of Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. That is the hindrance to our prayers being heard. That is why we are unsure as to whether God will listen to us because of sin. And we therefore need two things. We need a sacrifice to take away sin, to deal with the problem once for all. And we need a representative who is himself without sin and therefore acceptable to God to speak on our behalf. And Jesus exactly meets our need. He is the high priest we need. Thirdly, our high priest understands us and our problems and difficulties completely. Chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. I wonder if you had the experience of being in some sort of trouble or difficulty and somebody suggests to you, why don't you talk to so-and-so about it? And you say to yourself, I could never talk to him or her. Because they'd have no idea. They'd have no experience of the problem. They just wouldn't understand what I'm going through. It is not like that with Christ. What makes you fear that God will turn away from you? What do you struggle with in life? Pride? Greed? Envy? Lust? Anger? Laziness? Christ was tempted in every way, just as we are. Not one or two special sort of spiritual ways. Christ was tempted in every way, just as we are. He understands completely. What makes your experience of the Christian life less than you feel it should be? Is it frustration in one form or another? Frustration at work or frustration with the family? Something that seems a hindrance and holds you back? Is it anxiety, worry about things? Is it what one modern writer has termed 
a quiet sense of despair. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Loud cries and tears. Not a peaceful, easy experience of prayer. Not like the Buddha sitting with a beatific smile on his face. Loud cries, anguish. What is that referring to? Is it the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus sweating blood in prayer? Is it perhaps his experience of the temptation in the wilderness? Or is it, as I suspect is really the case, that it's not referring to any specific incident in particular in the life of Jesus, but just the whole experience of what it's like to live a human life in this world? He really does know what it's like. He knows what it is to experience frustration. He knows what it is to experience that quiet sense of despair. The one who speaks on our behalf understands our difficulties completely. And fourthly, therefore, our high priest gives us confidence in prayer. Verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with Confidence, not with uncertainty or trepidation, but with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, the writer then bangs on about Jesus being a great high priest for several chapters until we come to chapter 10, verse 19. And at the end of it all, he says exactly the same thing. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We need have no fear about coming into God's very presence. The writer refers to the most holy place. That was the very center of the temple in Jerusalem. The place where only the high priest could go, only once a year, only after the most elaborate ceremonies and sacrifices. It symbolized God's presence on earth among his people. And the message was, keep out, you cannot come in or come near. And the writer says, look, a way has been opened for us to come into the most holy place, into the very presence of God. You don't have to be the high priest. You don't have to do it after special ceremonies and sacrifices. You don't have to do it only once a year. Any time you can come in. An astonishing thought, isn't it? This word confidence really means boldness. The standard uh, lexicon of New Testament Greek says that it means outspokenness, frankness, plainness of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. Courage, confidence, boldness, fearlessness, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. Remember the story of Queen Esther in the Old Testament? Esther was the queen to the Persian emperor Xerxes. And there was a plot to sort of, a sort of pogrom to purge the Jews. And Esther was a Jew and she was called upon to intercede with the king, to go and speak to him about this, to save the Jewish people. 
And Esther said, well, all right, I'll do it, but you better pray for me. Because the law is that if you go into the king's presence or approach him without being summoned, if you come into his presence unbidden, the penalty is death. Unless he's gracious. That's not like that with God. He's not like an eastern potentate. We have confidence to approach God and draw near. One of the things that I really hate is being interrupted when I'm in my study, reading or working on a sermon. I hate it if the phone goes or somebody comes in and interrupts. I completely lose the train of thought. It takes ages to get back on track. It's really frustrating. When my children were born, I made a decision. The study door would never be shut while the children were in the house. Although I hate being interrupted, they would never be denied access to their father. And it seems to me that is how God treats us, and that was why I made that decision. I wanted them to know that God is like that. We can come in and disturb him any time, no matter what he's doing, as it were. So we need never hesitate to come into God's presence. We need never hesitate about what to say when we get there. Confidence means the freedom to speak freely, openly, fearlessly about anything, anything at all. And this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a formula to tack on at the end of a prayer. It's praying through the sun. It's praying in the expectation that God will hear us. Whether I have a sense of it or an experience of it or not, God will hear us because of Jesus. Tim Chester puts it well in this little book that inspired this sermon series. Christ does not stand before the Father. He sits beside him for his work is completed. There is nothing we can do to make his sacrifice more effective or to improve his work as our mediator. Our only claim before the throne of God is the blood of Jesus, but what a claim that is. If our prayers were made more effective through fasting or godliness or length, we could never be sure they had been heard or would be answered. We could never be sure we had done enough to satisfy the Father. But the Father is entirely satisfied by the work of the Son, and the Son's work is entirely finished. That is the confidence we have before God, and it is a confidence that can never be shaken. Let's pray. The words of a hymn that has become well known in recent years. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is hidden in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Father, thank you that in Jesus this is true. Amen.